As school leaders, is it enough for us to be non-racist? Anti-racism is understandably a sensitive development area for many leaders to take action on. In today's episode, you'll get some actionable tips on how to develop racial literacy amongst your staff. Hey everyone, I'm Shane Leaning and welcome back to Global Ed Leaders, a podcast about education across countries and cultures. I'm an organizational coach and in this show I learn with the teachers, leaders and innovators making a difference in international schools around the world. My guest today is Orin Badu, author of How to Build Your Anti-Racist Classroom and a distinguished leader in the UK education sector. Orlean is a beacon for those striving to make education more equitable. And we jump into our interview as Orlean reveals how she found her calling in education. The journey to headship for myself was quite a challenging one. Not in not so much in the way that people would expect, but actually as a sort of young black Caribbean girl in education, I suffered a lot under the kind of lens of just expecting sort of average from me. So as a student, I had teachers who would often just think I was, you know, always just average, even though, you know, at primary school, I was one of the best readers in my class, one of the best spellers. My teacher would never really give me the credit for that. Um, my parents always told things that parents even like she could do better if she stopped talking or um, she could do better if she was just a little less average um, So I think that kind of really sort of spurred me on to ensure that other children could kind of see their capabilities in education and not, you know, thanks for turning up, but that's about all we're expecting from you. And um, it was really difficult to challenge that as a young person. And my dad and my mum were quite influential in terms of challenging that. And I decided that, you know, education was going to be the route through which it wasn't about who your parents were, that you were going to have educators that understood your capabilities. And then I think the the opportunity to write a book, which kind of did that beyond my role um, and supported others, was an opportunity that I couldn't really pass up. It was something that I often did training about, often talked to other leaders about. Um, other teachers about I've done coaching for teachers for a number of years and it was often something that we talked about and the opportunity to write a book that would kind of ensure that all children could thrive and could surpass our expectations was really important. What you said about expectations it's interesting you saying that was your personal experience because throughout the book you talk about the expectations that are placed and how are you challenging yourself as an educator on the expectations you're setting for the children in your class or the expectations you have of them, positive and negative, and what lens are you looking looking through? I mean, you've done work, you were doing work with many schools across the UK as well. Yes. So towards the end of my headship, I started to do a lot of training um, at the local authority, so for other schools in my um, sort of borough, and then that went wider, it sort of went sort of pan-London. And then it was really important to just think about actually what's that work that I'm doing that goes beyond sort of where I am and goes beyond the remit of the school that I'm in. And then I so I curated the diverse curriculum resources that Hackney produced post-summer 2020. So we were, you know, it was very quick off the mark. It was decided that this was something that was needed. That summer of 2020 obviously, obviously was quite challenging times in terms of the pandemic. Um, children being educated away from school, the different differential outcomes. 
but also the tragic and brutal murder of George Floyd happened during that period. And it was it was kind of what is a way that we can respond that will change the the outcomes and the lives of children. By no means was the diverse curriculum the panacea. It was one way of approaching the problem. It wasn't the only way and it wasn't going to resolve every issue that existed systemically. And that work was, you know, that kind of went nationally and globally. We still have teachers from around the world who are downloading those resources. They go from early years up until key stage four. Stroke. Some schools have adapted them to key stage five as well. And they are diverse curriculum resources that really allow staff to deliver lessons across the spectrum. So not just looking at English or not just looking at um, art and design, but actually how can we think about every subject being diverse and decolonising um, that subject? Um, how could we create resources that are beneficial to schools? Um, so one of the first things was about making sure that they weren't just PDFs, but you know, how are we creating resources that schools could adapt and update? Um, I trained all the teachers because it was that was a really important part of the process, that training about what to include in those lessons, how to do it in a way that was going to be most beneficial and how to make sure that we were doing it in a sensitive way that was going to support positive narratives rather than continue negative narratives that may have been shared previously. It's interesting, Arlene, because... You mentioned about work on decolonizing, and and I work with mo- mostly international school leaders. Funnily enough, you know, decolonizing is something that we talk about uh, fairly regularly, or we or we should be, because the nature is there's a lot of these what British schools that have opened in other countries. So there's there's a the kind of old colonial attitudes baked into some of these practices. But the term that your book's titled with how to be an anti-racist educator, the term anti-racist might not be a term that's familiar to to many or, or all educators. Would you be able to give what, what your definition is of that and why it's important to use that word? So I talk about this a bit in um, the book, just in terms of, I think, sort of pre-summer 2020, um, I think most schools and educators would have described themselves as non-racist. And I think we're all quite comfortable in what that understanding is. And, you know, um, we'd have all probably said that we meet the Equalities Act and these are the ways that we do it and every child is catered for. And yet there were still these differential outcomes, both academic and lived experiences. So, you know, the kind of non-racist educator would have been a passive role. So it wasn't about disrupting inequalities. It would have been um, a role of observing inequalities, seeing them play out, but having no impact on changing those outcomes possibly kind of believing that, you know, the educator has no bias. So, you know, I'm not biased at all. Um, All children are treated the same in my classroom. We're all one race, the human race, that kind of um, colourblind approach also. Um, But just a really passive role. And I think post-summer 2020, it was necessary for us to have an active role. And for me, anti-racism is an active position. it's, It's the act of seeing inequality and and disrupting it. So I'm no longer choosing to be an observer. I'm no longer choosing to see children um, that are not thriving in my classroom for a number of reasons, both in and outside of the school. I'm no longer just going to observe that happening. What actually can I do to systemically challenge that? Um, Systemically is a big challenge for us in education as well, because 
um, and that was the other reason for writing the book. What does that mean and how does that look in my classroom, for example? But, you know, the, the actively anti-racist um, educator or organisation will be actively disrupting those inequalities, actively taking ownership of their own biases, whether that be in the individual or the system, understanding that we all have them and challenging them at every opportunity because we're never free of them and we can only educate ourselves about them. You know, I could use the terminology allyship, which is quite helpful um, in terms of being an ally for all children, but it's an active role. And I think as long as we are actively trying to dismantle inequalities for our students, not only is it beneficial for those students who experience systemic inequality, but actually it's beneficial for all. So yeah, any way that we can actively disrupt, but also I think the the necessity of the book was I talked to a number of teachers and educators who are really desperately seeking to be anti-racist. They want to improve outcomes for all of their pupils. They recognise the inequalities that have been laid bare, but actually um, have no support in how to do that. So what could that look like in my classroom? What could that look like in my school? We really want to do this, but what what should we be doing? How could we make that visible? Um, how do we know that what we're doing is meeting those aims of being anti-racist? So the book was really a way of kind of making that visual for everyone to see, actually, I really want to be anti-racist and now I've got strategies that I can make a difference. I love that. And you can tell in the book, you're a teacher at heart, Arlene, because we've got we've got rubrics as part of our assessment toolkit, which are incredibly useful. And, you know, I found reading your book, I, I said this to you last time we spoke, Arlene, it was it was difficult in the right way to to read and quite upsetting because you're totally right. I think rewind a few years ago and we might have all talked about being non-racist, but the passiveness of that is quite upsetting to reflect on when you know some of the systemic inequalities that exist that you so powerfully share, especially right at that start of your book. You really paint a, a, a picture of it. So for me, this was, you know, a powerful reflection for me and I'd really recommend anyone to pick up this book and read it it's not it's not too um it's not too long a book you can kind of sit with it there's not too you know the chapters are not too chunky and it gets very practical you I love the way at the end you summarize everything into kind of these rubrics of how to how to start to bring it to life in your in your practice um so thank you thank you for writing it Arlene really important thank you can I pick up on the point that you talked about of our unconscious bias because that's a big place that you start in the book and of course it's um something that many educators will be familiar with i know in my organization we have to do uh, you know almost compulsory unconscious bias training because it's 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 a thing but from your perspective how do you guide educators to really recognize and overcome their own unconscious biases because of the political landscape that we um, are currently living within, there's kind of a bit of challenge around unconscious bias training and is it necessary and what does it mean? Um, And, you know, I have always advocated for the importance of all of us understanding that we all have biases. So I think sometimes people think, if you say unconscious bias, they seem to think that means that you're giving people you're allowing people to be biased because it was they were unconscious and they never knew, ah. rather than really understanding that it's about the fact that it's knowing that we all have biases and we can emit them without realising and we have to challenge ourselves to do better. 
And I think that distinction is really important. And I spend a lot of time in the chapter and also in the work that I do really supporting educators and understanding bias is something that we all have. And what's really important is what we do about it and how we think about that practically in our classrooms. So it was really important to be quite early on in the book um, and really important for us to understand the ways that it happened, um, but also the things that we may do often without realising the full impact of that. So, you know, and just actually sometimes I think, Shane, as well, just calling out things that we know feel uncomfortable and understanding what that's about and how we challenge it. So, you know, for example, one of the ways that um, you can exhibit your biases is through microaggressions and they happen all of the time in the workplace outside society in schools because teaching is often a vocation it's very difficult to think about bias and racism in schools because most educators go into it because they want to improve outcomes for the children that they serve so it feels very difficult to kind of accept the fact that actually we still need to challenge those biases and racism where it exists in our school, both individually, but really importantly, systemically as well. And I say that really importantly because I work with educators who say, but Orly and I work really hard to challenge my biases and I get it wrong sometimes, but I'm really working hard to challenge them. Um, and I often say to them, but us trying to challenge them on our own is not enough because, you know, the system can also have biased outcomes. Yeah. And if you're a teacher that's trying really hard to challenge your biases and you're working in a biased system, the parents are not going to say, well, at least you're trying. They're going to say, actually, this system is biased. My children are coming out with poorer outcomes or my children are not having a fair experience in, in line with their peers. So it's really about us thinking about all of the ways that bias may present in our education system, in our classroom, and to really ask staff to unpick the scenarios that may exist in our classroom and just to understand where bias is and how it looks and how we begin to challenge that. And really importantly, I think if we don't do that very early on, what we will be presented with is educators saying, well, I'm not biased. I'm not, you know, I haven't got a racist bone in my body. Every child matters. And whilst we may all believe that is the case, it's understanding that there are biases that exist within all of us um, that will continually need to be challenged by us as educators, but also by the system that we work in. I, I think that's that's really important. It can it, you can naturally feel as an educator, well, that that's not me. That's not why I'm here. You know, this is the last place you'll find it. One of my roles is working as a as a coach in a classroom with 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 teachers, and and a lot of the time we use checklists or we use um, kind of ways to assess has learning happened or is there emotional safety in the classroom but you know something that I've been trying to work into my practice more recently is how can I assess equity within the within the classroom what would what would that look like do you have any kind of methods that that you use or that you would advise that teachers can reflect on their practice in that way uh, so I, I would say by the book <laughs> <laughs> um, but but actually I think you know you mentioned the rubrics before um I think they allow us to look at our classroom in a slightly different way to the way that we have normally looked at them um I think the the rubrics can be really useful for 
the educators in the classroom, but I also think as a leader as well, I would find them useful for looking at equity in the classrooms in my school. I think that, you know, they ask really pertinent questions of us um, that really ask us to reflect in a way that possibly other ways that we're monitored or other ways that we understand what our practice should look like. It really begs us to think differently. So um, one of the things I, you know, there's a whole chapter about relationships and that chapter is really about kind of reconsidering the way that we view behaviour. And if you think about the way that we've all been educated as teachers about how to maintain control in our classrooms, how to make sure that everyone, um, that the signals for behaviour are clear how to make it as visible as possible, how to set those routines. And yet it's not very often that your behaviour policy will ask you to think as an educator, actually, what have I done? Or what could I do to challenge? Or what could I do to disrupt the inequality that exists within my behaviour system, as an example? So I think the rubrics just really ask the educator to just think differently about things that we see in the classroom all the time. So having been a teaching assistant and having been a teacher, one of the rubrics that was really important for me is about actually, if I'm the teacher in this classroom, how am I role modelling to other adults the ways that I want the children to be treated in an anti-racist way in my classroom? What am I looking for? What am I seeing? What do I understand? Am I challenging staff in my classroom who um, are treating children in a different way, perhaps, or have different expectations? So I can work really hard on what my expectations are for the children in the class and I can try really hard to disrupt any inequalities. But actually, similarly, does that look the same for other staff members in my classroom? Is there equity for those staff members in the way that they're working with children and their expectations and their understanding of what they're capable of? So I think the rubrics are just a really useful way to kind of really just ask ourselves those deeper questions and whether that be, you know, peer to peer. Because I've done a lot of work with kind of staff in terms of peer observation. So how do we understand what's happening in each other's classroom? Can we do that as a phase? Can we do that as a team? Um, It's not necessarily. And just kind of to ask those questions of us um, and just to help us see, you know, how far along are we in this journey? And actually, if I'm thinking about the staff member in my classroom, is there anything in this rubric that I haven't thought about? Or is there anything that I could think about a bit more deeply? Or is there some further work that we can do? So I think the rubric acts as a way to really support. But also at the end of every chapter, there is a plan, review and act section. And that was really important for me because I think, it, you know, as I said, lots of staff were saying to me, we want to do it. It's just knowing how. So, you know, those sections at the end of every chapter are hopefully just a really useful way of putting that learning into practice. Um, it's a really useful way of us reflecting on our own practice. And there are lots of reflection point, points in the book that yeah. I think um, have come from a place of being a teacher and understanding the challenges that we face. Um, and just those reflections to just allow us to think more deeply, because we know that to challenge our biases, what we need is time to reflect. Just for listeners, the rubrics, you, you've split them into different areas which kind of correlate to your chapter so like I've got your assessment one in front of me here like what would assessments and then you break it down into the principles that you keep coming back to like equity inclusion well-being voice and you talk through the characteristics that might be expected you know in an anti-racist classroom and give an option to self-assess for anyone listening it's it's just it's very clearly laid out and very clear for you to 
and I, I, I imagine you could almost you could do it as yourself. You could almost do it as a as a team. Have some discussions around it as well. They're not big. They're not too big. No, they're not. And I think they are. I think this is a really sensitive um, area for many educators. So I think actually you could feel quite vulnerable to say to your peers or your face team, could you just come in and have a look at this? Um, so, you know, you will understand based on where, you know, your your environment and how comfortable you feel or how safe enough you feel the environment is to do that. But it is definitely also something that, you know, has been written that you can do for yourself. And just asking those questions sometimes is enough for us to really, it just gives us a completely different lens and I think is a really useful opportunity so I wouldn't you know I I think that's really important to say that the rubrics have been written and self-assessment is part of that um and for us as educators that I think that's a really useful process anyway but if you feel that including anyone else in that process would be helpful then by all means I think it would be beneficial absolutely Olin, I want to ask you something and and feel free you don't don't need to answer this but you mentioned behavior and about challenging ourselves when we're challenged behavior. Now, I'm quite active on social media in the in the kind of wonderful world of edu Twitter, which gets quite heated at, the, at, at times. And an interesting thing that's happening a lot at the minute is discussion of behavior and discussion of kind of zero tolerance policies and going back to, well, you know, actually, you know, behavior is behavior. We need to deal with it and stop kind of, you know, kind of, moping around like it's it, there's there's quite a lot of argument to them and are you presented with the argument much yourself with the kind of things you've presented in the book um so i avoid those discussions on this around behavior because it it is very um i find it quite triggering yeah um and i find it quite triggering because i think any any process that asks us to just get on with it and not think about inequalities that might exist or do exist um i find that quite challenging because you know i worked in a number of inner city areas i would say and i've seen a lot of um i've seen a lot of zero tolerance policies in existence um and i know that you know many schools that have great outcomes sort of swear by them yes but actually i i still think any system that you have has to think about the children for whom that's not working i don't think it's it's not working for them because we're just not being tough enough i think actually it's not working for them because they have a whole host of challenges that they're facing um and if we're not dealing with those challenges that they're facing then of course there's going to be challenges in terms of behavior so for me you know i remember once on uh edgy twitter seeing an, an absolute Twitter storm about somebody saying that behavior is communication (laughs) and absolutely but I know that you know if we're if we're thinking about being an anti-racist there are so many young people for whom if they had had the support that they needed when they needed it then behavior would never have been a concern and I say that both as a teacher from mainstream but both from a leader of a, a pupil referral unit and seeing children come into that people referral unit, being told by schools they've just got poor behaviour, that's why they're there. And within four to six weeks, finding out that there's an underlying need that's never been met. And if it had been met, the experiences for that young person would have probably been very different. Their outcomes would have been very different. So I just think, you know, I talk a lot in the book about being curious, Shane, and I think we have to be curious with behaviour. And, you know, uh, 
there is a challenge that if you have a really strong behaviour policy, you know, is it beneficial for the child or is it be most beneficial for the adults? Um, I think that's a conversation that needs to be ongoing. Yes, I, I agree. And I'm sorry if that then triggered you again, again because, do you know, I, <laughs> oh, no, no. I, I struggle with these conversations too. And I don't, yeah. and then I, and then I end up not engaging in them because, they, you know, because yeah. they, they get so heated, but reading your words, I don't think you can argue against being curious, investigating and, and asking questions and just, just challenge yourself. I mean, what, what can go wrong with that process really? Absolutely. And I think that sense of self-evaluation as well. So, you know, what do we as adults bring to that? And I think a lot of behaviour policies don't do that piece of work. So, you know, I, um, you know, I've kind of led training with staff about, okay, this is a behaviour policy. That's fantastic. But actually, one step before that is what are we bringing to the table? And how are we thinking about the decisions that we make about young people, about the assumptions that we might make about their families about them about the biases that we might hold because actually if we challenge those your behavior policy i say this everywhere i go your behavior policy is as strong or as you know it is as strong as the adult who administers it so having been a leader in a school and i speak to many leaders you can have one behavior policy and it can be enacted very differently across your whole school dependent on um kind of experience, racial literacy, knowledge of the children, knowing your environment. So actually, there is always going to be, you know, application is very dependent on us. Um, and really importantly, I think there is work for us to do on, yes, we have a behaviour policy. Yes, it does support the children in knowing their boundaries, but also we have to really unpick what do we bring to that um, to make sure that it is as successful as possible. Absolutely, yeah. I think leaders are leaders are key in 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 kind of helping support that conversation. I mean, in terms of leaders who might be listening, who think, you know what, Arlene, my school's pretty new to this journey. This is this is not. I mean, you've probably worked with many schools that are in in that same position. But a leader who goes, do you know, I want to start to think about creating a more inclusive and anti-racist environment in my, my school. Where would you say is a best place to start? Obviously, they'll buy your book. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, Shane, I think it can feel very overwhelming. And I think we need to take note of that, first of all, as well. So as a leader at the beginning of the journey, I think in many schools that I've worked in, the journey has begun, um, not all schools, but in many schools, the journey has begun because an issue has come up or somebody's said, this is, you know, I want this looked at. Um, and that can be quite a difficult scenario because when you come from it, as in this is something we want to do as a school, it feels much more of, you know, it's a, it's the a direction that the school have chosen as opposed to there's an issue and we now need to address that issue and think about that. But I think sometimes it can feel really overwhelming because actually to be anti-racist and to think about how we systemically um, improve outcomes for all of our pupils there's a, in every area of education that you can think about, there's work that we can do. So what I often advise school staff to do, because as you said, I do engage with schools on, you know, on the spectrum from having done nothing at all to we've done so much, but there's still more to do. Um, and I think it's about understanding what is needed. And I think one of the mistakes that we can make is we can think we know what's needed 
we can think as educators or as leaders that we know what's kind of where we need to go in terms of approach. But actually, it's really important that we understand what our community feels as well. So I would often say getting the community voice is going to be a, a really important part of that process. You know, what does student voice tell you? What does parent voice tell you? Um, how have you made student voice and parent voice safe enough that views can be given without worries of reprisal or isolation? And then if, you, if, if it's safe enough, you'll get the information that you need. Um, to understand what those experiences might look and feel like from the community's perspective. You know, if we only go with our own perspective, we have quite a lot of power in school. So um, it's a very different perspective. Um, and it's really important that that space is safe enough to, for the pet, for those in your community who feel most systemically disadvantaged to be able to say, actually, this is my experience here and beyond. And I think having all of that information from our community then you'll see things come out they might match what the school thinks the themes are I think it's really important for schools to get staff voice as well at every level to see what staff think and again thinking about is it safe enough for staff to give their opinion without worry worrying that they'll be isolated for that or it will have some negative impact and you'll see the themes come out. And then I think it's about making it's prioritising which themes we need to look at first. So you'll probably, for example, get so many themes and just be like, oh, my God, this is overwhelming. And actually, what's really important is that you prioritise what can we do now? What can we do later? And you start in that way. I think a really easy thing to do is to say, right, well, we're going to do the curriculum. Yeah. That can feel like an easy way in, although it's not easy if it's done properly. But it can feel like that's an easy option. Um, but I think, as I said before, it's not the answer to everything. So I think it's about, you know, I often advise schools, maybe you just have, need to have your top three in your school development plan this year or, you know, your school improvement plan or, you know, any way of self-assessing yourself as a school. Maybe you need to have a top three this year, but also show a commitment to kind of thinking about that on a rolling programme. So this year we're focusing on this. Um, and what you might find is that it will then it will then lead into, well, what are the other things we need to look at? Or actually, is there something we need to do a bit more of? Um, and I think one of the things that I would say should be on everyone's plan, other than training of staff, I think it would be about developing the staff body's racial literacy. So does our staff body understand what race and racism looks and feels like today? And if it's in the U if you're a school that's in the UK, that's quite easy to say, well, what does that look like and feel like in the UK? But actually for international schools, I think it's even more important if you think about all the, the different communities that you've got coming together. Um, do are our staff well equipped to understand um the lived experiences of the students that we're supporting, serving? I think in education we can have a view that we're just here to teach the children and you know and if we give them the not if we present the knowledge in the right way all children can flourish but I think we need to take account of um those lived experiences those academic outcomes not just of the child but of their families as well because that's we could probably do another podcast about parents perceptions of education as well but kind of really how are we ensuring that our staff are fully equipped to challenge inequalities um, and are fully equipped to understand those experiences because if you don't have the racial literacy it's going to be near on impossible to find the solutions. 
So just making sure that we've got a strong understanding of the, the lived experiences of different, many different groups in our communities and therefore being able to use that knowledge to think about the solutions. That's incredibly helpful. And, and that's re- it really struck me what you said about assumptions that we, we need to think about. And especially in an international school community, we can't assume we understand the, the lives of all these, these diversity. And, and so I love the idea of thinking about creating safe places to ask and to talk about it and actually getting your community in and, and talking about this in, in a way that feels appropriate. And I also, I love the kind of, it seems kind of a low threshold way in to look at curriculum because it's almost like, it's almost a neutral third party that you can have a play with these ideas and these concepts and to to think about before you have to then go and do the really ouchy, ouchy self-reflection stuff. So um, I think there's many ways in and I, I think the main, my main takeaway is thinking about creating a safe space and, and thank you as well, Oling, because you've, You've created a safe space in our conversation today. You've created a safe space in the book for educators to to engage with this in in a really um, proactive way. So I really I really appreciate what you do. Thank you, Shane. I appreciate that. You write a book and you put it out in the world, and you're like, oh my goodness, what's going to come back? So <laughs> any feedback is greatly appreciated. I mean, it's quite scary as well. You're not just talking about something bland here, right? <laughs> like, so you're putting you're <laughs> yeah. you're putting yourself out there, and you're putting a you're putting a stance forward, and you're you're making a clear call to action. So there must be a lot of vulnerability in that. Yes, there is. But you know, I so I've been in education for about I'd say twenty plus years now. Still can't believe that, but it's true. Um, I have I've had experience of racism bias inequality in education Mm -hmm. my children are having experiences of my parents have had harrowing experiences of schooling and bias and racism that they've experienced so I think um you know sort of racial trauma is about that continuation of inequality so it's about the fact that you know my parents have gone through that they have struggled whilst I've gone through that I'm now struggling whilst my children go through that and it's continual racial trauma. And actually, I think the book really was an opportunity for a call to action to say, how are we going to disrupt this? And how can we do that in a systemic way? So, um, yeah, it, it is a, I think I, I have put myself out there. I can't, it does feel quite vulnerable, but I'm actually, you know, it is, it, yeah, it's time, Shane. We've, we, we, you know, we keep trying to resolve um, the issues of inequality um, and it think it feels to me like we're in a particular time in a particular er- era at the moment where, you know, where if you think about decolonizing the curriculum, we're kind of thinking about, you know, we're thinking about our history, we're thinking about how far we've got to go, and hopefully this book is part of that journey. Today, Orlean really got me thinking about what expectations we have on the children we serve and how we can work to challenge our unconscious biases. It's not just enough to be non-racist. We may well be non-racist, but that's a passive position. We have to see the inequality in front of us and disrupt it. And our challenge as leaders is how to do that systematically. I thought Orlean's ideas with rubrics can be a super useful way for evaluating the equity in our classrooms and practices. And the ones in Orlean's book, How to Build Your Anti-Racist Classroom, are a great start. You can find a link to her book in the show. 
Global Ed Leaders is hosted and produced by me, Shane Leaving. Original music by Guillermo Silva. If you like this show, I think you're going to love my newsletter with reflections on the latest episodes and leadership advice from my blog. You can subscribe on my website, shaneleaning.com. And if you are online, please do reach out and share your journey. You can find me mainly on X, Twitter, using my handle, at Shane, or on LinkedIn, using the links in the show. But if we don't speak before, I'll see you here next week.